Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, this is our final day of our series, The Price of Victory. So let's conclude by looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 6 to 14, as Dr. John brings us a message entitled, Aiming for Continual Restoration. The definition of a true revival is that it restores the church to what it was intended to be. The nature of the Christian life is twofold. On the one hand, we are to be constantly ready to repent. Whenever the Holy Spirit makes us aware of sins, don't delay. Fully confess your sins as far as you're able. Reconcile with those whom you have injured. Keep short accounts with God. On the other hand, we're to continually strive towards holiness and submission to the known will of God for everything. Whatever we hear the Lord saying to our lives, we are always to respond, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Of course, as we know, these two wonderful truths, repentance and straining toward holiness, well, they're often in need of repair. The little sins are often left unattended until they grow and we're unaware of them. Our hearts become dull and we often fail to ask, what is the will of God in every area of my life? You know, if these things are left unattended for a long period of time, a state of stupor develops. Then should God be gracious, revival comes and suddenly we're awakened to the normal Christian life. You know, the revival in Saskatoon that took place in the year 1971. Well, before the revival began, there had been an intense prayer meeting at Ebenezer Baptist Church in that city. This was not just a normal prayer meeting or, you know, praying for Uncle Harry's ingrown toenail or Cousin Judy's university exams. You know, there were times of prayer in Ebenezer Baptist with full confession of personal sins and a consuming passion for holiness. And then when the revival actually came, after each meeting, the altar in the front was flooded as people came forward to confess their sins. The conviction of sins committed and unconfessed was powerful. People began to openly renounce adultery, theft from employers, and cheating on income tax returns, sexual sins, illegal drug use, alcohol abuse, abusing of others, unreconciled relationships. The list went on and on, and the sense of abandoning these sins and finding forgiveness in Christ, it left the entire city with a palpable feeling of joy. See, here's another effect. You know, many in the city that thought they were Christians discovered through those revivals they had never known Christ. There had been no evidence of a new heart, regeneration, or of new birth. And through this, many were saved. Again, I say to you, the church had returned to what should have been the normal state. Revivals restore, but it also brings some to Christ who have never been in Christ. It would seem that this was happening in Corinth, but as we're aware, it wasn't happening for all. How large was the disobedient minority? I think we can't say. I mean, was it 40%? Because that would still be a minority, but it would be a fairly strong one. I think it was much less than that, but even if it was 25% or 10%, well, you can imagine that this would have had a long-term disruptive effect in the congregation. And so Paul's been fighting for the hearts of the holdouts. And before we read this text, my dear listener, can I make this personal? Perhaps that's you. Perhaps you're one of the holdouts. There are sins you're not renouncing. There are relationships you will not restore. For you know it would require humility for you to repent. 
There's a calling on your life for service unto Jesus, but you don't want it. For you have plans for your life that you don't want to be disrupted by Jesus. And you've settled into being a holdout now for many years. You don't think about it much anymore. You keep going to church, you listen to the occasional sermon, but your life is not laid at the feet of him who died for you. Your life is your own. For this reason, 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5 is meant as a shocking command, a command you need to hear. Examine yourself to see whether or not you are truly in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? That is, are there sins you're okay with, that you have come to accept, sins that are now comfortably a part of your life? You know, maybe it doesn't bother you anymore, but Jesus hates these sins. After all, think about the contrast. Jesus hates them, but you love them. To this, the voice of Jesus is speaking through Scripture. Have you found that after all this that you failed the test? If now the truth be told, there is no evidence that you have a changed heart, a heart that hungers after righteousness. If that is you, wake up. Paul is saying that to the Corinthian church, but he's also saying it to us. If you hear his voice today, it's time to pray, O Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Take the sins that I love and drive them from me. And take this heart of stone and replace it with a heart that hungers and thirsts after you. You know, if you want that, you need to find a godly pastor or a godly Christian leader, and you need to say, I've come to confess my sins, and I've come to fully surrender to Jesus, and I've come to trust in the cross of Jesus. Would you help me? And then watch to see what God does. To the minority of the holdouts in Corinth, Paul has more to say. So let's read now 2 Corinthians 13, verse 6. After telling them to test themselves, Paul now writes, I hope you will find out that we have not failed to test. Paul writes that because he knows that instead of testing themselves, the rebellious minority have been testing him. That's no different between that and what happens to so many today. You know, they spend their time railing against the failures of the church and no time at all in honestly coming to terms with the failures in themselves. And perhaps that's you, my dear listener. Have you been deflecting and blaming the church and others while the sins that lie inside of you remain there? Paul wants the rebellious minority to know that he had not failed the test of self-examination. Indeed, it's absurd to assume that he had. Was not the gospel that was being heard in Corinth the result of his ministry? Had he not taught them and had they not watched his life? You know, many years later, John would write this very same thing. 1 John 2 verses 3 to 5 says, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. And Paul might have said, while you're examining whether I was a great public speaker or not, or whether I had a commanding personal presence or not, whether I was quick to take on my enemies or not, but did you also examine whether or not I was obedient to the commands of Christ? See, I think the rebellious minority would have had to hang their heads in shame at these questions. They were asking questions about effectiveness and not about obedience. And it's no different today. 
Many do the same thing. They're content to see someone as an effective speaker and a leader and a manager and so forth and are seemingly unconcerned with a matter of obedience and faith and submission to Christ in all things. And Paul says, go ahead and examine yourself. And if you must, you can examine me as well. Now to verses seven and eight. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right that we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. That's a bit of a difficult sentence, so let's take it one step at a time. Paul begins, but we pray. You know, this matter of testing ourselves, it's very serious business. One's eternal future is at stake here, and so Paul is deeply in prayer on this matter. He's concerned for the eternal future of his enemies in Corinth. Now, notice what he's praying. He prays that they might not do wrong, and then later, that they might do what's right, speaking about their sins. Next, notice he says that we may appear to have met the test, and then later he says, though we may seem to have failed. Paul is quite aware that since he raises the matter of testing themselves, that the minority will not be testing themselves at all. And they'll turn their guns on Paul, and they'll be putting him to the test by whatever false measures they were intent on using. They might say, well, I guess he has met the test of being a true believer, or they might say, well, we think he's failed the test. The problem lay not in whether Paul was genuine or not. The problem lay in the tools of measurement these members of the church had accepted. This is a problem, and that continues to be a problem today. You know, for example, there are those who argue that the test of genuineness has to do with whether or not you have a certain spiritual gift. For instance, do you speak in tongues? For instance, can you cast out demons? That kind of thing. Others think the test has to do with whether they appear to be blessed by God. Are you becoming wealthy? Is your business succeeding? And still others might think the test has to do with, you know, other things. But in each case, these tests are simply tests of external measures rather than a full and a glad and a humble submission to the will of God in everything. And so says Paul, I'm aware that you might come to all manner of false conclusions about me. But says Paul, All that put aside, my prayer is still the same, that you learn to become men and women who are obedient to Christ. Paul's saying, I'm less concerned with how you view me, and I'm far more concerned with your genuine conversion to the will of Christ in everything. During the month of March, we'll be highlighting the international efforts of Back to the Bible Canada. Did you know that our radio program with Dr. John airs in India and neighboring countries such as Sri Lanka, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, Burma, Vietnam, Eastern China, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Iran? If ensuring that your brothers and sisters around the world have access to daily Bible teaching is important to you, you can help. Your gift toward Back to the Bible Canada's international ministries would help develop and encourage pastors in India and help reach thousands of people with trusted Bible teaching programs across much of Asia and the Middle East. To support our international ministries, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Paul 
Paul has given the Corinthian believers an accurate description both of himself and his ministry in Corinth. He's a man under orders. His words that he can only act according to the truth means that he's fully aware that his entire ministry is being done in the presence of Christ who watches him. So now we go to 2 Corinthians 13 verse 9. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. In a way, verse 9 is a summary of the entire book of 2 Corinthians. See, throughout this book, Paul has been boasting about his weaknesses. You might remember way back to the first chapter of the book, Paul was talking about his weaknesses there. Chapter 1, verse 8, he said that his ministry in Asia had become so taxing, the afflictions he experienced were so overwhelming that he had come to the point of despairing of life itself. That was a very precarious moment. How was it possible for him to go on when it seemed that he no longer had a desire to live? And then we remember his words in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And Paul is saying, look, I know that I'm but a jar of clay, easily broken and destroyed. But inside this weak vessel, I have a sacred treasure. It's the gospel that declares the glory of God and the cross of Jesus and the transformation of men and women to become the people of God. It's an amazing contrast, isn't it? A powerful, glorious gospel in such a weak vessel. And then in that same chapter, Paul's not yet done with that discussion. Chapter 4, verse 11. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. See, Paul believes that his weaknesses are not just circumstantial. That is, you know, because of the opposition of others, because of persecutions, as well as, you know, other things that his ministry necessitated, you know, I'm as weak as I am. No, he thinks there's a greater reason for his sufferings. And that greater reason is that he's given over to death for Jesus' sake. That is, he is to identify with the death of Jesus. And believers are to see that the man who is Christ's apostle is called upon to fully participate in Christ's sufferings. And says Paul, there's a marvelous reason for all of that. The reason is that the resurrection life of Jesus would also be seen in me. No one will ever say, you know, well, Paul, you know, got the message out because of his amazing gifts. It wasn't that, was it? Rather, the message got out because that weak and dying man was given the power to minister a precious and powerful gospel. It's the only explanation for the success of the gospel. Now fast forward to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And there, if you've been following with me in this study, you'll remember that Paul had a thorn in the flesh. We don't know if it was an illness or maybe it was persecution or something else. That's not the point. Rather, the thorn was so debilitating that Paul pleaded with Jesus to take it from him. And you'll remember the answer he received then. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9 said, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, Jesus had told Paul that it was his expressed will to make Paul into a weak man. And only in this fashion would Paul highlight the power of Christ. So let's get back to 2 Corinthians 13, verse 9. When we were weak, which is what Paul had been displaying, when we are weak, he says, you are made strong. That's to say, it's through suffering that the gospel came to you. Our trauma, our debilitating weakness gave you the greatest strength ever known to man. It gave you the gospel. 
So that's why Paul wouldn't boast in himself. He would boast in Christ. That's also why when the gospel demands that we should humble ourselves, that we would find that in the humility of repentance, in our own weakness, we would find the strength of Christ. So go to verse 10. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Paul doesn't want to come to Corinth in strength. See, coming in strength means that he's going to come and excommunicate those who refuse to repent. Why would he want to use that tool in his toolkit instead of wooing the unrepentant towards genuine restoration in Christ? Paul is here a marvelous example of what it means to be a godly pastor. He doesn't want to win the argument. He wants to win men and women to Christ. It is true in the case of the sexually immoral man in 1 Corinthians 5 that Paul was forced to excommunicate him. But doing so was not the source of satisfaction. It was for Paul the failure to have reached that man's heart. But this is not just an example of a godly pastor who's got the right attitude. It's also an example for how God deals with us should we persist in our own sin. God's not willing that we should perish. God sends us the warnings of our conscience. And if we resist that, the voice of our conscience becomes quieted. God then sends us the voice of Scripture. But when the Bible collects dust on our shelves, the voice of Scripture is also quieted. God sends the voice of godly leaders to preach repentance. God's Holy Spirit grieves our heart. But what if all of that is also resisted? What if in the end there are no tears in our eyes? when we've not torn our garments in sorrow, and when our knees are not bent, what then? Paul says, the reason I'm writing these things is I would rather write them than have to say them face to face. See, Paul's planning a third visit to Corinth, and he doesn't want to use his authority to tear them down. I know that most contemporary North American churches today, the matter of church discipline has been all but forgotten. But if it is forgotten, then all that awaits us is the discipline that comes before the judgment seat. Would it not be better if something would interrupt our ways now? We move then to the last section of the book, which is a series of exhortations, a series of commands for the entire church. So let's read verses 11 to 13. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. Paul begins with a series of five commands. Number one, rejoice. When there's repentance, the joy is palpable. God is being honored. The gospel is being proclaimed. It's being lived out. Many smiles, much rejoicing. Second command, aim for restoration. You know, a more literal translation says, be made complete or be completely sufficient. But it comes with the implication, may your ways be mended. Or as our translation says, aim for restoration. I might say, may your walk of following Jesus be fully restored. Yeah, you did veer into rebellion, but may those things be entirely healed. May your ways be mended. May you be brought to wholeness. Third command, comfort one another. We might also say, console one another. You know, we've all been around people who love to say, I told you so, and then we'll point out all the errors that we've made for the rest of our lives. Instead, Paul wants constant consolation. When you think about it, there's an amazing command. After all, this church 
has mutinied against Paul, and Paul wants that there might be consolation, peace. He does not want to utterly win the day. He wants redemptive harmony. Fourth command, agree with one another. Another translation is be like-minded. Think the same way about matters of the gospel and of the constant need to live in repentance and faith. Paul might here have, you know, recalled the dissension that had once plagued the church and still did, and factions had developed. But Paul wants a church that was once torn apart, that all disputes would come to an end. You know, how many churches today are torn apart because of one dispute after another? You know, perhaps the dispute is about, you know, how badly one person has been treated. Sometimes it's over politics in the church, and sometimes it's even over politics in the world. Sometimes it's over budgetary items, the spending at the offering plate. You know, the reasons for dispute are many. And to be like-minded doesn't mean that we think the same thing about everything, but it does mean that we all know what matters most, that we're making much of the big things and little of the small things. And lest there be any argument, let's understand the basis for the unity of all churches. Churches that are united agree on this. The gospel has number one place. Repentance and faith are given first place. Willingness to submit to Jesus is first. Zeal for personal holiness is first. Those matters become the subjects of conversation, and they form the like-mindedness of the church. Command number five, live in peace. And with that comes a promise. God will be with you. And with that, Paul ends this wonderful book, verse 14 the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Thanks for a wonderful series, John. Do you think revival is a thing of the past? Would we know what it looked like even if we saw it? (laughs) Well, if it's a thing of the past, then I think God is done with a church. I know he's not done with a church and I believe Uh, that uh, we will still see times when uh, the Holy Spirit, uh, out of great love for us, will revive our churches. And I think this is what it looks like. A part of it will always be that we repent of unconfessed sins and that we begin to experience restoration where relationships between believers have been broken. Uh, and also where God's laws are being broken. I mean, all of those things, it's a returning the church, as I've said, to normalcy, which is the normal Christian life. But as a result of that, I would expect that um, evangelism and care and concern for the lost would also be a part of that. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week as we begin our Easter series, The Suffering and Triumph of Jesus, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. This month, Dr. Neufeld will continue his video series, The Missionary God, which airs weekly on Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel. We believe these messages are so important for believers that we want to send you the expanded message series on CD for free. We'll explore questions like, why is it that God can allow so much suffering in the world? And why has God commanded us to make disciples of all nations? There are so many challenging questions, and though they may make us feel uncomfortable at times, they require Bible-focused responses. 
So join us this month on air, online, via podcast, or listen on the Back to the Bible Canada mobile app. Don't forget to ask for your free CD copy of this important series by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.